0: All right, Can Knock the Shuffle, episode eight. You already know what it is, and if you already know what it is, then you probably already know what I am about to ask you. If you haven't done so already, make sure that you leave a review on the podcast and rate it five stars wherever you get your podcast from. It helps. It helps the show. It helps me feel good. It'll probably help you feel good. It's just a win-win all around, and we need more wins in 2020. Okay, without further ado, here we go. Welcome to Can Knock The Shuffle. I am Sean Kantrowitz. I'm a music producer, I'm a TV producer, the host of a hip-hop game show called The Questions, and I'm kind of obsessed with how songs get made. As a fan, I've always noticed that artists typically only get asked about the same handful of songs throughout their entire career. It's always made me wonder, what about the stories behind those lesser-known songs, the ones that journalists tend to overlook? And in my experience, Those unheard stories are the ones that the artists really want to talk about anyway. So that's why Can't Knock The Shuffle exists. I take an artist's entire catalog, I put it in a playlist, throw it on shuffle, and then we talk about whichever songs are randomly selected. We take the interview angle out of the equation and leave it up to the algorithm to dictate which stories get told. Nikki Jean is a hip hop artist through and through, but her music may not always appear that way from a distance a singer-songwriter who got her start in the extended family of the legendary Roots crew as a member of the band Nouveau Reach. Nikki's big breakthrough came when she wrote and sang the hook on Lupe Fiasco's hit single Hip Hop Saved My Life in 2007. She's collaborated with Lupe throughout his career ever since, but that was really only the beginning for her. Her debut solo album, Pennies in a Jar, put her in the co-writing chair with over 30 members of the American Songwriting Hall of Fame, including Carole King. Burt Bacharach, Lamont Dozier, Carly Simon, Tom Bell, Barry Mann, and she's been keeping busy ever since. Most recently, releasing her beautiful prison album on her hometown of Minneapolis's powerhouse indie label, Rhymesayers Entertainment. A record that, by the way, I produced and worked on with her. So yeah, beyond being a fan of her and what she does, Nikki is also a great friend of mine. We covered a lot of ground in this episode, and whether you're a diehard fan, or maybe a little familiar with her work, or if you've never heard of her at all, I think that you're really going to enjoy this one. So, let's get into it. Can't Knock the Shuffle, episode 8 with Nikki Jean. Nikki Jean, hi, hello, how are you?
1: I'm so good, how are you?
0: Good, I was just, I was saying beforehand, this is so weird because... We're friends. We've worked together on some things. And you have one of the most interesting stories that I know. Like your story of your musical career would make a great Mad Lib because there's so many interesting plot points to it. And I mean that in the most complimentary way.
1: No, it, it feels crazy too. It feels a little all over the place. My life does feel like a Mad Lib,
0: actually. <laughs> <laughs> we've got your uh, catalog here and we've, we've mixed it up and we're going to dive through and, and go into it. So are you ready to do this?
1: I'm so here for it. Let's go.
0: Song One is from 2014 from a project called Champagne Water. And the song is called Hands Up. (laughs) (laughs) They're
2: talking to the witnesses. They're getting their descriptions and got them in so it seems. They spotted him and they got him. They ran up on him and shot him just up a mile away. just some kid with headphones rocking with his hands deep in his pockets.
0: I wish that this song didn't feel so timely.
1: Ah oh, man, that song I wrote that song for my little brother, and I think I wrote it shortly after Trayvon Martin and his his murder and. I remember I was still working on it and kind of lamented that it wasn't out when Tamir Rice was murdered. And I had this sickening realization at that moment that it would always be timely, that it's always timely, because there are always young Black people being murdered by police. And yes, I know Trayvon Martin wasn't murdered by police, but it is still a state-sanctioned murder when someone can be wearing a hoodie, eating like Skittles and you shoot them because you're scared and get off obviously and get off. So hands up, I always think about my baby brother and especially in these times, I'm always like, just, you know, it's so hard to tell someone the police might be wrong. They are most of the time when it comes to dealing with like young black men. And that's my experience. And I know my experience is biased but I was shot at by the police this summer And like, fuck that. When people say, don't say defund the police because that's not what we mean. It is the fuck what I mean. Like, I mean that shit. I think police are so much more scary than almost anything we encounter on a regular basis. And that's coming from the place of my experience. And I think that people who have very different experiences, they're like, you guys are so hyperbolic. And I don't know how we bridge that, that gap. But the song Hands Up, the first verse is about Like the perpetrator, alleged, who is not even really a perpetrator, right? Like it's a person who just walked out of the corner's doors, listening to music, has their hands in their pocket. But the second verse is kind of from the perspective of a police officer who's scared. And the third verse is the perspective of me just talking to my little brother, like, yo, just put your hands up. Like, I know it's not fair. I know that you have very likely done nothing wrong. But just get home safe.
0: Do you think that songwriters and artists have an obligation to speak about these things? What is your viewpoint on artists sort of addressing the issues that currently are happening in the world? Because there certainly are some, but I think that the general sentiment has been, especially in the last year that we've had, the output sometimes does feel a little light, especially in comparison to previous decades where you had the biggest artists in the world really making more explicitly detailed songs that also served as social commentary. So how do you sort of feel that responsibility or is it a responsibility for artists to speak on those things?
1: Well, my preference is good songs. So if you're able to do that very well, then I think it benefits us all. I, I think when Donald Glover released This Is America, that was like a great song Because it was also a good song. I think when people who this is not what they do try and force it, it doesn't help any of us. I would prefer you just make really, really good music. I think it's more do we as humans have kind of an obligation to check in with each other and check in with the world around us. And for artists, if we're doing that, it will come out in our work. I think sometimes it doesn't come out in necessarily released work. I think sometimes people probably make heavier songs, they're like, oh, this is a downer, I'm not releasing it. But also in terms of 2020, we have so, it's so heavy that it doesn't hurt me that some of the offerings are lighter because we can't escape the heaviness of this year. There's almost nothing you can watch on TV. The pandemic, the elections, I think that in past eras, protest music has been to raise awareness about these social ills. But we're very, very aware right now. So I don't think it's necessarily our obligation to release that music, but I think it's all of our, we all belong to each other. So becoming more aware of those things and helping spread that awareness is a beautiful human thing to do, as is providing relief from the heaviness when we're so inundated with awareness.
0: That's a good point. It, you know, if it if it doesn't necessarily speak to those issues, it's almost a reprieve from the issues that are, we're just being constantly bombarded with all the time.
1: Yeah, and it's exhausting to be bombarded with them all the time.
0: Totally. What are your memories and sort of what are you, if you, in looking back at this era, what was the champagne water era? What did it represent in your story? Where were you coming from and, and where did it sort of lead you?
1: I think champagne water was my first real release after my album, Pennies in a Jar. So it was me kind of trying to, Pennies in a Jar I wrote with all these songwriters from everywhere, Champagne Water was me like, okay, now you're not doing that. What kind of music do you make? What is your sound? What do you write without a co-writer or without rules or having to fit into a genre? It was definitely a homecoming to hip hop for me. And that was so beautiful. And I just had so much freedom on that project. And I definitely think that it bridged the gap between "Pennies in a Jar" to "Beautiful Prison." And I'm still trying to figure out, like, what does that mean for me to be like a hip hop songwriter to have these like strong hip hop elements and merge like my deep love of traditional uh, American songwriting. I think it was a very important step in that direction.
0: Song two is from 2007. It's a song that I'm sure you've probably talked about a bunch, but I'm always determined to peel back a layer <laughs> of the orange that hasn't been peeled back before. It is. I'm
1: imagining what song this is.
0: Yeah, I, I saw you smile. I feel like you already knew. But it's called Hip Hop Save My Life, Great wait, Fiasco. Wait something 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 stack that
2: cheese mother sister cousin stack that cheese he couldn't think of nothing stack that cheese he turns down the beat right black block impedes crying from the next room a baby in need of some pampas and some food and a place to sleep that plus a black cadillac on d's is what keep him on track to be a great MC. Yeah. one you never heard of i push it harder for the, the i feel like murder but hip-hop just saved me one you I've
0: had other artists on the show before. I think I was talking to RJD2 actually about the Mad Men theme uh, that he did, A Beautiful Mind. And my question to him was, "Do you hate this song? Like, are you are you sick of having to to?" be associated with this song and I sort of that's my impulse to you like not necessarily leading with do you hate this song but how does it feel to to have a song that so many people instantly that's the connection that's yours is that frustrating or do you feel grateful for it
1: no I I, it's the song that changed my life it's a song that allowed me to see the world And just like two three weeks ago I met with this woman named Ashley Quinones who's the wife of Brian Kinyounis, who was murdered by police in Richfield, Minnesota last year. And when I sat and talked to her, she was like, oh my God, that's you on Hip Hop Saved My Life. I remember that song. That song helped me through this time and that time. And you never know what your music, I mean, I'm very happy that that song is an uplifting song and that it is is like, oh, Hip Hop Saved My Life instead of like a real downer.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that you weren't having a, a a tantrum or or in a mood when you wrote that.
1: Yeah, like I prefer and Kalis has many wonderful songs. But like I hate you so much right now. If I only had one song and that was my one song, I'd be like, "Oh man." <laughs> you know, like this is not a downer of a song. This is kind of like a an uplifter of a song.
0: Yeah, like you almost have to think about like if it's going to be your walk on music whenever you walk into a room or onto a stage, do you want to, Do you really want to be walking out every every night or in every room to I hate you so much right now something like negative.
1: But Tulis has so many great songs. Oh, of course, yeah. But it, that is exactly the point. You never know which of your songs could blow up and then you're stuck with that song. And I'm just so grateful that mine is like kind of on the more uplifting vibe that I get to hear a bunch of beautiful stories from beautiful people and they have it tattooed on their body. And yeah, I I like it, I fuck with it.
0: I don't think I know the answer to this, which is why I'm gonna ask you now. How did you meet Lupe in the first place? Like, how did you guys connect?
1: So I was, I'm dating myself. I was on the Roots top eight in Myspace. Shout it out. (laughs) And two producers, Chris and Drop saw me there we're like, oh, you know, we're in Jersey, let's come to Philly and work. And you might know, Chris & Rock produced "Gold Watch, Gama, "Gold Watch, got my. And we did a song called Sunshine and everybody really liked it, but particularly Lupe liked it. And they were like, yo, I think Lu wants to sign you. And I was like, what? Because I was already in a band and I just, I don't know. And one day he just called me and he was like, hey, it's uh, Lupe Fiasco. And I was like, okay. And that was, <laughs> thus it began. Like we started recording together, and by that time next year, we were on the road.
0: You were on the road after this song and the album had come out. Yeah. What, what's your memory of writing and recording this song?
1: Ten minutes in a basement.
0: Ten minutes in a basement. Really?
1: That's it. That's that's, that's absolutely it. We did we did Little Weapon at G Balls, us as engineers studio, and. We were at Chill's house, his manager, Chill, and we were in the basement. I remember they had a pit bull.
0: As one must if you have a, a basement studio. It's sort of one of the you gotta have the monitors. You have to have a couch.
1: It was pretty nice for a basement studio, but it was still a basement studio. Yeah, it was actually way nice. Like I had a little booth. It was but it was a Chill's house and we were there and he pitched me this song and he was like, listen, this is not going to be a single. It's not going to have a video. It's not going to be any, but here's the idea for the song. And he kind of told me the story that's, that's present in the song. And we didn't have a lot of time. And I just was listening to the beat, that soundtrack did. And I was like, huh. And I talked to Dice Raw from The Roots, who I was my bandmate at the time, like a week or two pre- previous. And he was like, Nick, like when you write to track, sometimes I feel like you're fighting the track. Like you need to ride the beat, like work with the beat, become a part of the beat when you write to these tracks. And I'm so fortunate to have had that education because Dice is such a master hook writer for the Woots, shout out, and himself and for his theater stuff. Anyway, listening to the soundtrack track, I was like, how can I do this? And I just tried to take what Dice said, apply it to this story. And 10 minutes later, we knocked it out real simple, like, we doubled it, and that
0: was it. Don't overthink it. I guess is the lesson there
1: that I never learned. I did it that one time, and then <laughs> that was the last time.
0: Well, you do it once, and then you know that gives you the the freedom to be able to ignore that advice. You know, Absolutely. so many other times. I, I I know what you mean, though, and I can kind of relate to it because as a musician and and as just a listener of music, I definitely had a period in my life where I always almost looked down on top-line vocals that just doubled an element that was already in the beat. So like, I understand that resistance to doing that. But of course, it just works. It makes so much sense sometimes. But I don't know what it is about certain brilliant musicians like yourself and myself, who we just hear that and, and sometimes at a stage in our life, we just have such an aversion to it, you know?
1: I, I think so many times, and when I'm talking to like young artists too, I'm always like, "Uh, you want to do something that's never been done. And so, you know, you'll sit and you'll spend all these hours trying to come up with chord progressions that have never been done and things that you've never heard before. And I think that has taken me to a point in my career where, yes, we want to do something new and innovative, but let's not overlook the fact that just by us doing it, if we really tune into who we are and we bring our most authentic selves to our work it's already new because we've never existed before. Like our unique blend of influences has never existed before. We don't have to try so hard to be different. Like we can trust that we are different.
0: Right. It's like there's, only, there's really a finite amount of colors that you can apply to a canvas. So it's not you have to invent a new color every time. It's just about how you, what, how you see it, how you're going to hold the brush. What, there's,
1: there's 12 notes. Yeah. <laughs> there's 12 <laughs> notes at the end of the day. This is what we're working with.
0: You mentioned that you were in a band uh, before with Dice. In what ways do you feel being in a band was sort of advantageous to set you up as a collaborator? Because one thing I've noticed uh, in my own personal journey is that I've encountered a lot of people who have always just made music solo and, you know, them at a laptop or them at a beat machine. And I think that there are advantages to that in that you know, you sort of have to trust your own instinct and vision. But sometimes trying to meld or mesh with other ideas, we've all seen it. It There are some people who don't work well, don't play well with others. So in what ways did being in a band shape you early on?
1: Oof. Shout out to all my former bandmates in Nouveau Riche. Dice Raw, Carl Ferrari, Cara Mateen, uh, Dominic Angelella, Joe Baldacci, John John, Alex... Shout out to all of them in love. I learned how to sing in a booth from being tortured by my bandmates. (laughs) No, I learned how to do everything from being tortured by them. And yes, it was torture. And yes, it was part of the best times of my life. Like it was the best of times and the worst of times. Truly, truly. It made me so much better. And it drove me so very crazy. And it's kind of made everything after it seemed easier and not as fun.
0: Easier and not as fun. What do you mean?
1: Probably anything is easier than being in a band with them. But I'm not sure if anything is as fun. as.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's not as rewarding, I guess.
1: Well, legit fun though. Like there was a lot of fun that was had. And I still look back at our projects and feel like that was some of my strongest writing, concentrated. So like, I still have writing now that emerges that I'm like, oh, this is very good. But I am able to look back at that point in time and be like, huh, I see where it was weak, but I'm like, you had some good ideas there. And even more now, I look back at my bandmates with appreciation and be like, guys, we're really doing something. I do think that it made me, when I sit down, I have to to co-write with people and to collaborate. I'm much more... When I write songs by myself or before I was in a band, I was like, okay, I have an idea and this is how I want it to go. And after working with them, I was like, okay, so we're going to make music and we're going to see where it goes.
0: Right. It's not going to fit the, the vision that you have beforehand because you have all these variables that are going to be introduced.
1: It's not as important because I'm very much a Virgo and very particular and be like, it's not important to accomplish the idea I had in my head. It's important to accomplish great music whether that's my idea or his idea or all of our ideas and walking into it with the idea that with the knowledge, hey, what you have in mind is not what it's gonna be. I don't know what it will be, but it's not gonna be that. What you have in mind is the starting point and be okay with that and be okay with it. Like, so I think that's the big gift that it gave me. The evolution is actually where beautiful things you never imagined can happen.
0: That is the real reward and the payoff. You just have to embrace and accept that it's going to be a ride.
1: And it is always.
0: <laughs> song 3 Is this song from 2019 or is this song from 2012? You could say both. It is red, black, and blue. And it was a demo that was released officially, officially on I Beautiful Prison.
2: The scene is dead, the scene is dead, and I keep coming back to you. The dream is dead, the dream is dead, and everything is red, black and blue, like mine.
0: This is actually a rip from a YouTube video, right? Yes. It's so… it's so good. Like, <laughs> This was the project that we worked on together. And this is a song that I have nothing to do with. This is… obviously this was done in 2012. And it's my favorite song on the album.
1: We gotta step our game up then, Sean. <laughs>
0: No, but, you know, I think part of it might just be because, you know, when you work on a song, you live in it for so long. And to me, this song's inclusion on that project is always sort of a gift that I'm able to listen to it. And I, I'm not attached to it. And, and, but with any of the wheels or the machine behind it, I'm just able to listen to it. Which I guess is something that you don't get to do with any of your own songs on the project.
1: But I still, you know, Red, Black and Blue is so interesting because... I have to like sit down and play it once in a while so I don't forget how. I actually remember watching Frank Ocean do a little rough video of Summer Remains. And I was like, that is so good. That song is just so good. I was like, can I do that? And this was as close as I could get to something like that. But I was so sad at the time. And even though the song was, even though the song I'm trying to, I'll just, 2012, when I wrote the song, so Pennies in a Jar came out in 2011. I got very kind of unceremoniously dropped by all the people I was working with when my album flopped. And around the same time, I lost this building that my dad had left to me because of some shenanigans uh, with family, which happens when people die and there's trusts and there's things like that. And things were just going really, really poorly. I was coming out of a relationship. It was just too much all at once. And I had a complete breakdown. And I tried to kill myself. And I was institutionalized. And I had a physical altercation that I still can't remember with the person I was in a relationship with. So at the time that I wrote that song, the song's called Red, Black, and Blue. And there's a line like, like my eyes each time we fight and I had a black eye in the video that's on YouTube you just can't see it because it's kind of like over here a little bit like you see the shadow of it and I I think that we tried to re-record that song but we could never really capture again just that quality just the super raw emotion that was in that is who I was at that moment in in time. So I'm really happy that even though the sound quality is pretty shitty, that we put that song on the project because I don't think I'm usually that vulnerable.
0: You put that video out in 2012 and you, you had put out other projects in between. But So why put it on Beautiful Prison?
1: So I put out Champagne Water before and I think with Champagne Water, I was like trying kind of how we discussed trying to establish like, what does it mean to be this hip hop singer songwriter? And I really still at that point was like, I can do a better version of this song. We can produce this song. We can, it didn't take long after that to be like, but maybe that's not what you should do. Maybe you don't have to be everything all the time. Like just being yourself, you are that like you, (laughs) you are so hip hop and you are such a songwriter and you don't need to have like 808s behind every song to prove it. You don't have to prove it. You can just be it. It's okay. And I also think that I was not ready to be that vulnerable. And I also felt like, oh, it's already on YouTube. That's old. That's... But in the context of Beautiful Prison, I think it told more of the story, more of like the loose narrative of that project where, you know, we're trying to get out of that. We're trying to get out of that prison and how do we do that there's this James Baldwin quote that I'm going to try not to butcher but it says something to the effect of we can't change everything we face but we can't change things without facing them we have to face them first before we can change them and so in terms of just my growth as a person and as an artist it's like you know con- confront confront those things that you're uncomfortable with, like confront your vulnerability, let it be your strength, let it be strength for the people that listen to it. And just being willing to also be authentic when like, oh, I wish I could reproduce this performance, but I can't. Like this is a singular performance for me and I can perform it again. And that other performance might also be good, but this performance is like a special one that I want to share.
0: So in a way even though chronologically it's older it almost it serves the narrative to have it be the last song because it is sort of coming to terms with that idea and and facing that owning that vulnerability and and really moving past it by documenting it officially uh, on an album.
1: And yeah, and saying like yeah, this is this is actually a part of who I am. It's not all of who I am, but it's it's a part of who I am and I'm okay with it.
0: You know, you were really uh kind of an early adopter, I would say, in terms of putting songs out on the internet. And it, 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 it totally doesn't feel like a thing that is even worth distinguishing now. But, you know, MySpace, YouTube early. days.
1: I was you, super early. And now I'm like, early. ugh. <laughs> I was super early.
0: You're like, I did that before, you guys. I did it before it was cool. But, I
1: did. And I got tired before it was profitable.
0: <sighs> but I always see, you know, on any time you post something or anytime you share something, I've seen many times in the comments, hey, I'm looking for a song that you posted in 2009. Uh, can I get that?
1: I try too. I really try and put it up there for them.
0: Is there an archive? Is there a library? Like, do you ever think about trying to, even if it's just in the way that this demo was?
1: That's a good idea. And so sometimes my fans actually send me cool stuff. I recently got a version of Pennies in a Jar with Burt Bacharach's voice on it from a fan.
0: how the fan have it, but you don't have it?
1: It was in the Japanese release, and I can't buy that from here.
0: Shout out to the fans.
1: Yes. I love the fans. I love them.
0: See, that'd be a cool project. It'd be like a call to action, like calling everybody who wants to be an archivist to the Nicki Gene archive. Like, let's... Let's pool together and, and build the library. I hate
1: them, and then I'll put them all on bandcamp and we'll <laughs> live happily ever after.
0: So cool. Not a huge jump because it's on the same project, but this song is from 2019 on the beautiful prison album, and it is called People and Plain. Sometimes I stand
2: out in the rain Don't know why can explain it. Can't relate to it. No.
1: I just didn't see pandemics coming, I felt something.
0: It, it is a song that seems rather prescient, doesn't it?
1: Again, I th- well, so I got to work with Kenny Gamble a little bit. And he said, look at patterns. Look at things that people do over and over again. Look at things that happen over and over again. So when you, they smile in your face all the time. They want to take your place. He's like, I was just watching people. And I kept seeing it over and over. And People in planes is like that for me where I'm like, another plane crash, another school shooting, another bombing. You're like, this is a pattern, (laughs) where will it end? We keep selling more and more guns. It makes sense to me that that will result in more and more people being shot. And I, I think it's interesting too, I just was on a meditation retreat, I'm pulling this up. My meditation retreat, I think about this a lot because as you know, I have to try and keep a level head in these troubled times. And it says, when I cause harm, I'm hurting. When others cause harm, they are hurting. Which is like a much more like namaste way of saying hurt people hurt people, but you know, you see it. And as I look out on the landscape of the world and see how many people are hurting each other, I just think it holds a mirror up to how much pain and isolation we're all experiencing. We, find it very difficult as a whole to see each other as one. And I, that's a weird description, but that's kind of what the song is about. When you say, can't get to heaven only as high as my people. You know, like our liberation is tied up in each other's liberation. And to the extent that we can't even see each other as an extension of our own humanity, we're real far from freedom. So it's, it's an everyday struggle.
0: Was this a song that started on piano for you?
1: Guitar, yeah. It sounded like a super folk song when I wrote it, and and I remember I auditioned it for Lupe. Like on the guitar, I was like, "Hey, let's do work on the song." He's like, "Nick, I do not play guitar. Like, I can't do anything with that. Like, <laughs> go record a song. <laughs> go make." It. And I love when he does that because it's such a reality check. Like, oh yeah, true, <laughs> true. I don't even remember how it initially went. I probably should have saved that recording. It was markedly different. It was like a one, five, four type John.
0: Same melody or or even different melody. Like
1: different and a little faster. folks here. Folksier, here, but like, hey, yeah, folksier. Like if hey, yeah was a folk song.
0: I'm just thinking back even to all the different iterations of the song by the time <laughs> I got involved in it because... Again, a lot of the songs on the Beautiful Prison album—they'd been around for a bit, and we were sort of reimagining them. There, there were so many different offshoots, and if you look at these, like there's just like all these alternate versions. Yes, of these I'm songs. not
1: doing that anymore, Sean.
0: I'm not doing it either. <laughs> let's let's not do that.
1: No, we're not doing that. Let me ask you a question. Okay. Are you still producing? Yes. I can still send you songs. Yeah. Okay.
0: Are you saying this for the podcast or are you saying this for like real life?
1: It's real life. You okay. can put it on the podcast, but it's real life. <laughs> right.
0: Put it in as a little plug. Yeah, no, I'm I'm excited. Uh, I, I definitely would like to work on more stuff and not overthink it. I'm not saying that to you, I'm saying it to myself as much as I'm saying it to you.
1: I, I My new strategy, there is a story about this pottery class where this guy... This teacher was like, one half of the class, make as many bowls as you can. The other half, just make one bowl, but the best bowl you can make it. And the half that just made as many bowls as they could ultimately ended up making much better bowls than the one that just, so I'm just trying to make more bowls now. I'm trying to make more songs, you know, get them to a place. And it's like, not try and perfect an okay bowl, but it's like, we'll make a new bowl. Like we'll make a new song. (laughs) We're not going to get overly attached to these songs. We're just going to make a bunch of them and see what happens.
0: My friend has been preaching that a lot. Uh, her, her mantra is, it's better to get it done than to get it perfect.
1: Because what you learn in that effort and then you take to the next effort, I think is more valuable than just staying in that one effort.
0: Yeah, I get so envious of, not envious, but I just, I, I really respect those artists that crank them out.
1: I'm surrounded by very prolific humans right now. ASAP is super prolific, atmosphere is super prolific. I'm trying to learn from them.
0: Well, I was going to say that that's a great segue to the next thing I was going to ask or just talk about that this project was your first on Rhymesayers, which I'll let you get into it. But like Rhymesayers was both a new chapter and sort of like a a homecoming for you.
1: Yes, I'm from the Twin Cities. Um, I started going to Fifth Element when I was real young. Uh, my sister used to open for Atmosphere at shows and work the door at shows, my older sister. So I've known them for a long time. Is Scribble Jam with them back when Mikey, Idea was alive. Shout out to Mikey. I've always been a huge fan of the label, huge fan of the people at the label, Slug from Atmosphere, Ali, people I love, Al, Blueprint, such good people. And I, I'm thrilled to be signed to the label. It's nice to work with people who care about you as a human, more than they care about your success as an artist. They're like, yeah, we want you to be successful as an artist, but not at the expense of, like, you and your wholeness, which is pretty rare in the industry, and I'm, I'm really happy to be here.
0: Soulfly. 2015, Lupe Fiasco song by the name of Madonna and Other Mothers in the Hood.
2: Now we prosper. I do if said it is
0: your The that he doesn't love it when you come in with an acoustic folk song and tell him to just start rapping on it. But what is the songwriting process like between you and Lou?
1: It varies so much. We write so many different kinds of ways. He's my favorite person to collaborate with because we've done it so much. He's such a great writer. And he trusts me but pushes my writing at the same time. Sometimes, like with this song, he'll have a hook written. I'll come in and I'll sing it. I'll write like on this one, he had it written. There's two versions of the hook on the song. So I wrote the line, Lord knows if I said it in this gospel, but the rest of the hook he had. He lets me come in and do all these different like layers and harmonies. And there's a part in there that sounds like it might be pads, but it's actually me like just floating all out. And he let me do it. He lets me have a lot of fun there. But some songs like, well, Hip Hop Saved My Life, I wrote by myself, and like Little Death, I wrote by myself. When we did, I said we did, but it was his album. I was just heavily featured on Drogas Wave, and when we worked together on that, it was the first time I got Lou to sing something that I wrote on record, and that felt like really special to me. So,
0: so from your perspective, what is this song about?
1: You know, Tesuo and Youth, such a beautiful album had this very loose storyline and feelings that went with the seasons. And I think that this, there's several songs that kind of tie themselves together with this song to me in terms of like Chapa, which had like all the homies, like Billy Blues on it. I love that song. But this song also to me kind of ties to Prisoner. So there's a lot of like social justice and, and Deliver. Peace man don't come here no more. So there's a lot of like, Lou talks about social justice issues a lot on Twitter and in song. (laughs) And in, in this, I think that this was kind of a storytelling exercise, just like Hip Hop Saved My Life was. Like he was telling this story and there's a lot of redemption in it. There's like a lot of humanity in it, just like he does with the songs about the babies that have been, you know, murdered. He's real good at it. He's real good at taking that abstract and making it, so personal and so present. And it's like, oh, we're right here now.
0: You have, throughout your career, worked sort of side by side with someone who is often regarded as one of like the most lyrically dense, the dexterity of the writing complex. There, there's a lot to unpack and, and unwrap when you listen to these songs. It's is just something I would always want to know. Do you ever get into a session and you're just like, Lou, what the hell is this song about? Like, or does it seem a little bit more uh, evident when you're actually there and witnessing the creation of it?
1: Well, on one hand, like Lou will tell you the concept of the project and I really love his writing. But sometimes I'll just like not listen if I don't. (laughs) Like, what is it you want me to do? Bet that. (laughs) You put mural on and I'm like, just a lot of raps right here. (laughs) Yes some good rapping, <laughs> but I might have to listen to that like several times. And I remember talking to, um, you know, we were working on that project and I just done cover of Drift Away, Ab's soul song. And then I was like, Lou, do you think he would like do a song with me? He's like, yeah, I think he's like, will you connect us? And like, he did the thing. And Ab was over at the studio, he played Mural. And I remember saying like, oh, it's so dense. And Ab had such a good thought he was like, yeah, it's meant to exhaust you. Like mural is meant to exhaust you. It's meant to hit you so hard that you're like, Oh, you're, you know, like almost like a Thai massage, like just like, okay. And like, listen to the rest of the album from that state. I think that in an age where a lot of people's work doesn't have a lot of replay value, Lose always does because there's Easter eggs there for days. And there's, one of my first hip hop albums that I fell in love with was Resurrection from Common Sense, who's now Common. And that's what I loved about it. That I could listen to it, get something different out of it next time, get something different out of it next time. So yeah, I'm thrilled to have been had the opportunity to work with Lou so much because I love his work and it's fun. Like it's fun for me. And especially like some of his newer stuff, the house tape, the, Timbuktu day from Wave, like when I hear him having fun, like just on the track, I'm like, you are having so much fun right now. And as his friend and someone who cares about him and someone who's worked with him, it's a joy to hear him having fun and still being so like lyrically dexterous.
0: What's the biggest thing you've learned about songwriting from Lou?
1: Oh man, he's a great hook writer, isn't he? I think he's a great hook writer. I think his biggest hits he's written the hooks on and he's a fantastic hook writer. That That's... A big part of it. We worked in a nonprofit society of spoken art, Sosa Guild. Shout out to all the ITs who I adore. And through working together, I think it kind of codified what I learned from him, which is his ability to, I have a deep appreciation of his album craft. If I ever make another album, I hope to apply some of those things that I've, I've learned. And also his ability to take like a high concept. And make it so personal and make it so immediate. Janila Forever is a great example. And I, I think that, you know, post Malone will say, Oh, if you want to cry, like don't go to hip hop, go to Bob Dylan.
0: Nah, no, we don't we don't we don't we don't agree Yeah, with that trash.
1: Um yeah, we don't agree with that. But like I've written with Bob Dylan and I've written with Lou and Black Thought, you know, and Lupe's songs make me cry every bit as much as a Bob Dylan song can make me cry. And that's I think that's a gift.
0: From 2011, it's from the aforementioned Pennies in a Jar album, and it is called How to Unring a Bell.
2: Like the snow from the sky, like a tear from an eye, like a shot out of a gun. Now I can't stop the rain and I can't stop the pain, I didn't mean to hurt no one. Down. How to unring a that. Once you choose, the hand you play is to lose.
0: I know that the premise of the album was deeply involved in the marketing and the, the, the narrative of the album, but it still bears sort of repeating and exploring. You worked with legends. On, on this album? Every, every song on this <laughs> album was you paired with a writer from the American Songwriting Hall of Fame?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: How does that... Uh, like, how? Huh? What?
1: Jody Gerson, she's really powerful. <laughs> she made these things happen. <laughs> she made these things happen. I'm passionate about songwriting. I'm passionate about songwriters. And songwriters from this era, mid-20th century pop, which is all of Motown, but it does include... The Philadelphia sound, it includes people who've long since passed, like Woody Guthrie, but also people who are alive, like Bob Dylan. So I got to go around the country and write with as many of them as would possibly write with me. At the end of the day, I wrote with 40 Hall of Fame songwriters, not all of our work. Was good and not all of it made the album. <laughs> but this song was with my uncle Tommy. He's not really my uncle, but he said I could call him my uncle.
0: Tom Bell, the, the man, just stylistics, delphonics, the spinners, uh, Denise Williams. I'm not even scratching the surface here.
1: His his wife is Hawaiian, and his daughter, I got to meet one of his daughters, Tia Bell, who I adore. And we just like clicked right away, and I looked like I could be related to him. And they're like, oh. You just called me Uncle Tommy. And I got to go up to Bellingham, Washington and work with him and just had the, had the best time. And he told me all these stories about Linda Creed and amazing lyricists that he worked with over and over again. And this is a song that we wrote together. I love it. I still have some like recordings of him. It's just beautiful.
0: Is the reference to a bell in the song title referential to the fact that you were writing with a Mr. Bell?
1: It just turned out that way. It's, a, it's actually something that he said. He, he was like, I mean, how do you want to ring a bell? And I was like, aha. And that was just, some people just carry magic with them wherever they go. And like, Tom Bell is one of those people.
0: Where were you in the uh, songwriting process when you did this collaboration? Like, how far into this odyssey were you?
1: I would say I was in the middle of it. If I can separate things into beginning, middle, and end, this was definitely the middle portion.
0: Were you nervous about doing this? Like, I feel like you would have had to have been. Even though it was it was a dream come true, I would imagine, it still just seems like as a relatively younger songwriter going in with all of these legit OGs, what was going through your head at that time?
1: Learn what you can. Like just learn what you can. You can't you can't focus on like impressing them or any of those things. Cause some of them were like super nice and some of them were like mean, a little bit <laughs> And you just have to sit there and be like, yo, it's such an opportunity. So like, take it in, be grateful, be humble. Because people would tell me like, I don't like what you do. I like music like this and this and this. And I think that this is the wrong way to go about things. And you have to be ready in that moment to be like, well, that's why I'm here. I'm here to learn.
0: But why would they take these? I mean, uh, I guess you can't speak for them as to why they would want to get into a room with somebody that they could then, you know, disparage or...
1: Oh, here's the thing about songwriters, especially songwriters who have had major smashes, which all these songwriters have, they want another one. (laughs) And if there's a chance, if there's a chance that they're like, signed to Columbia, you say, I'm getting calls from like important publishers. This could be some heat. This could... One more hit. They all want another hit record. There's no songwriter that's had like a hit record who if you say to them, would you like another one? They're pass. No, they're all like, hmm, there's a chance here I could have another hit record. Let's go for it.
0: How did you write How to Ring a Bell together?
1: He was playing piano and humming. So he writes very similar to Burt Bacharach. They're both classically trained composers. So when they write, they're also writing a melody line, uh, which is also how Barry Mann writes. And then this is a beautiful thing about writing with them because it used to be songs for publishing, you'd get 33% for the chords, 33% for the top line melody and 33% for the lyrics. And then it switched to now with tracks, it's like 50% for the producer, the production, the track and 50% for like the top line and the lyrics. You have to, when you work with a writer who writes these melody lines, they're very specific about syllable counts, about how sonorous the words are, about the scansion, about where the stress is on the word. So like if you're saying second, the accent is on the sec, not on the und. So you couldn't put that in a line that says second, you'd have to say, second, and if they already wrote da-da, you better find a different word. Like, that doesn't work. So it's a very like, Sudoku crossword style, but make it art (laughs) of writing assignment.
0: I mean, I can't be the first person to sort of draw the connection here that that sounds awfully similar to how a lot of these later 20th century writers, the rappers, the, the MCs, also treat the way that they are sort of putting, piecing together these puzzles.
1: It is, but I think that it's piecing together puzzles. So it's, you're still using the same kind of muscle, but you're using it in the opposite way. So I remember hearing somebody, one of my students before say, you know, anyone can make cat rhyme with hat. Like that doesn't even take skill. Like skill, you're making words rhyme that don't even rhyme. Like that's skill. And so like with, Something that is seen as very artful as a lyricist in hip hop would be looked at as like syllable jamming or like, this is not a pure rhyme. This isn't even, so like slant rhymes, certain generation of songwriters in a certain genre of songwriting are like, you mean a non-rhyme? No, it's a slant rhyme. No.
0: Laugh you out the room.
1: They're just like, oh, you're one of those writers. Okay. It's fine. You know, like it's not, they're not going to laugh at you. They're just going to be like, oh, I understand it's definitely puzzles and it's definitely problem solving, but you want to get all those skills under your belt so that you just have such a sense of it, to have such a like innate sense of it so that when you sit down to write, you are able to actually let the art come. Like you've worked on your craft enough that you're a solid vessel when the inspiration comes or when you just sit down to do your work.
0: Did it feel risky for you at the time to coming from the background that you were coming from and the music that you were known for, and then putting out an album of music that it didn't exist in the... It wasn't Hip Hop Saved My Life. It wasn't really, you know, the, the nouveau Reach, like, stuff. It was definitely a left turn. Did, did it feel like you were taking a, a major swing at the time? Or were you? did it just inherently feel like the right thing to do?
1: I didn't have any other choice as who I am. As someone who really grew up loving... I remember when my producer, Sam Hollander, he was like, You'll go around and you'll write with all these songwriters. And he had already done a song with Carole King. And I was like, I get to write a song with Carole King. And he was like, Yup. And I was like, I'm in. <laughs> like, I could, it was, it was an offer I couldn't refuse. No offer of like riches and fame could compare with me being able to like sit in a room with Mr. Bacharach or Lamont Dozier, or, you know, Carly Simon. Just be my absolute heroes and work with them and hear their stories. And it is an incomparable experience. I'm so honored. I'm the person that got to have it.
0: So 7. It's what we affectionately call Lucy in the industry because I don't think this belongs on any album but it is the song take, take you out
2: you take you out for a little fun let me take you out you're my favorite ex best of sex yes let me take you out tonight maybe you're 45 maybe be in I Millly silly looking back but I really thought you were special. But now I think a 38 special might be the thing. Cause you're just like my
1: last
0: friend. Classic example of a song sounding like it's one thing and being perhaps a little darker.
1: It's a Motown song. Think about all the great Motown songs, right? Sugar pie, honey bunch. You know that I love you. I can't help myself. Like this is a heartbreak song, but it sounds so upbeat. And that was the secret of Motown. And they, Mr. Dozier told me this when I sat with him. He's like, yeah, we always, where did our love go? Like, it sounds good and it feels good, but she's like, our love is gone. <laughs> like, that's not great. So that's such a classic Motown lesson. I think Prince did that a lot really well, too.
0: It's the dichotomy of, of the, the meaning and the way that it's presented. And it's sort of just irresistible when when it's done right.
1: And it's yeah, I think it comes back to that balance of things being like too heavy. They they become so heavy that they're not enjoyable. Sometimes those heavy songs are like the the best example I have of like a great cathartic release song in the past. Just barely ten years. Somebody that I used to know, but it was still kind of upbeat. Totally. I always want and and also. I guess I'm learning that all the lessons that I got from my songwriting homies, like Jeff Barry, is that you have to be like the hero of your own song. So if you're really sad and fucked up and then you write a song that is also like, yo, I'm sad and fucked up. And then it also sounds really sad and fucked. It's hard to come out as the hero. And I think I'm still learning how to be like, no, be a little more, like, fuck with yourself a little more. Like, be a little more heroic in your work. But I think somebody who did that recently, relatively recently, was Jessie Reyes in Figures. Because she is sad and she is fucked up. But she does come through that song as the hero. I think Take You Out for me was just coming through that song as like a spectacular heroic villain.
0: Heroic villain. Did, you know, we talked a lot about thinking and overthinking and trying things out. Did this song also have a similar journey or was it pretty immediate from its inception to let's just capture the rawest version of it?
1: You no, know, I was pretty pissed off and I went to sleep and it was a period of my life when I was going to sleep with my guitar and I woke up at like two in the morning and wrote most of the song and went back to sleep. And then I think like a couple of days later, this back when I was still recording in Amir's room, just went in and cut it. And we never everything we tried to add to it, I was like, I don't know if I like it as much with the added pieces. Um, for live performance, it's good to add drums and bass so that the audience is like, I'm not at a folk show. I'm at a hip hop show. You're like, yes. Did you hear that 808? <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, it was, this one was pretty straightforward. And I think that's to the point that we don't have to like overthink things and overproduce things for them to be effective.
0: I feel like, your whole career, as you've described it, is just strategizing when to use and when not to use the 808.
1: That's it. That's all I do. I think about it like, no, wait, no. Wait,
0: no, okay. Now. Now. <laughs> Huge shout out to Nikki Jean for going through her catalog on the show with me. If you want to stay up to date with everything that she's got going on in her world, please be sure to visit NikkiJean.com. Thank you to everybody who's been supporting Can't Knock the Shuffle. As we get closer to the end of the first season of the show, make sure again that you rate and leave a comment on the podcast wherever you listen. You can find me on social media at Sean Dammit. That's S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. And I also strongly urge you to check out my hip-hop game show, The Questions, by visiting questionshiphop.com. You can also shoot me an email at can'tknocktheshuffle at gmail.com. Till next time, peace.